Welcome to the experience. Sharing insights into the future of customer and employee experiences with Avaya. Welcome back to another episode of The Experience, brought to you by Avaya, where we're bringing you thought-provoking conversations with industry leaders, technologists, creators, influencers, and others who are bringing to life the future of experiences. I'm Steve Forkham, and on the show today, we have adventure racing legend, multi-sport athlete, coach, author, and speaker, Nathan Fa'avai. Nathan is with us today to talk all about endurance in the face of adversity, team building, effective collaboration, and so much more. Nathan, thanks for joining the show today. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here, Steve. The title of your autobiography is Adventurer at Heart, and that perfectly describes you. When did you first realize your love for the outdoors? My love for the outdoors really traces back to when I was a child. My family here in New Zealand used to go away camping every summer. So it was just tent camping. We'd essentially drive to a beach and put up tents and camp. But we would do a lot of outdoor things, swimming in rivers and sort of going snorkeling and diving in the ocean and fishing. And I think I really enjoyed that outdoor sort of lifestyle connection, but also a lot of fond memories of just sort of family time with my brother and sister and my parents. So yeah, from that, I used to really look forward to the summer holidays where we would, we would go away camping and spending time in the outdoors. And then as I grew older into a teenager, I just started to kind of explore more really and do more hiking and essentially just spending more time in, in the outdoors. And yeah, certainly by the time I was in my mid-teens or late teens, I had a real passion for just being out in the wilderness and outside doing things. That's awesome. In addition to your storied career as a world champion athlete, you're also a dedicated coach and team leader. As a leader of New Zealand's most successful adventure racing team, how would you describe your leadership philosophy when it comes to communication and collaborating among the team? If there's one word that I would use to describe my kind of leadership style or, or something that I keep front of mind when I'm in sort of leadership roles, that word would be composure. I think for me, it's really important that whenever I'm leading a group of people or a team that I stay calm and, and composed and sort of relaxed and cool. And I think that really comes from the environments when I've been in where I've been more of a follower under someone else's leadership. and I guess I've looked at or felt different people's leadership styles and some of it I'm like, oh, I really respect this leader and how they're managing this situation. Other times I'm going, I don't know if this is actually the best way of doing this or if it's the most effective way of, of getting the desired outcome. And so I think for me, you know, what I like about leaders, if I'm being led by someone, is kind of the leadership style that I try and portray. And a lot of that really is, is just not to sort of panic about things and not to sort of overreact. And a lot of that composure, I think, just comes down to just having some patience as well. So when things potentially go wrong or not quite going to plan, is not necessarily sort of flying off the handle and overreacting, but just being really composed about it and sort of remove the emotion from the situation and just think about what is actually the most helpful way forward from this particular situation. So. Yeah, my leadership style, I'd, I'd like to think is pretty much that, just very composed and relaxed and try and just keep calm and make 
sensible decisions, you know, in those high pressure situations if they arise. Yeah. And it's, it's funny you say that because one of the best compliments that anybody's ever paid to me, and this is even before leadership or anything else was, you know, you don't get too high, you don't get too low. And I think that's the best type of kind of leader to follow is not one that was kind of snapping at you with authority or kind of barking at you when you do something wrong, but the one that really kind of inspires you to follow their direction and to your point, keeps their calm when things go sideways because they inevitably will. But to your point, if I put a destination into a GPS and I miss a turn, it doesn't mean that the travel's over. It just means I've got to redirect, you know, the GPS going to reroute me. A good leader kind of does that. All right, we got to reroute or whatever came up. So it's kind of, it's fascinating to hear you say that. And I think that's just so crucial. As you're leading and you're talking and kind of driving your team through unimaginable conditions, what are different modes and styles of collaboration that you found to be effective when you're building cohesive, successful teams? It sort of relates very closely, I think, to that leadership style of that sort of composure, exactly what you were saying. And I guess if I was to perhaps explore that a little bit further, you know, I think one of the really good essentially downstream effects of being that quite calm and composed person and just accepting things that have happened and sort of moving on to sort of find the solutions. I think what actually happens as a effect of that is, is that you keep the communication lines open. And so often when I'm leading a team, especially in adventure racing, is, is that a problem is really only a problem if it's not kind of talked about and shared and addressed and probably fixed before it becomes too big. And I think what can be a block to that communication is if the leadership model or even just interaction between teammates sort of lacks that composure. So you know, someone may have an experience where they see something's not right or they've done something wrong or you know, things have sort of become a bit unraveled and they've actually spoken up about it because they believe that's good communication. But the reaction they've had from either the team or the leader has been negative. So they're less likely to kind of be so communicative or so open or honest going forward. So, so I think for me, one of the key things in the team is to keep that communication line open so that it's totally okay. There's no, nothing's off the table and people know that they can bring up whatever it is, no matter how crazy it may sound and know that they'll be treated with kindness and respect and essentially appreciation for raising the issue rather than, you know, kind of sweeping it under the carpet and, and leaving it to be someone else's problem or just hope that it might go away when probably it won't. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't know something's going on, you can't fix it. And creating that kind of a trust environment to me when you're a leader is is crucial. I think from one of my favorite TV shows, Ted Lasso, you know, problems are like mushrooms. And when you keep them in the dark, they just keep getting bigger and bigger. And if you create that environment where somebody can't feel comfortable saying, hey, something's off here, or I made a mistake as a leader, you're in the dark. You're really setting yourself up for failure. And I think you touched on this a little bit, but have you found different modes of communication work better with some people than others? Yeah, they do. I think everyone is different. And that's the great thing about human beings is everyone has their own personality and responds to different things differently. And probably within the context of adventure racing and our adventure racing team, it's probably just a bit more about what brings out the best in people. And there's a number of different things there, but some people prefer to have 
lots of communication and contact. Others prefer to work sort of more independently, to be sort of given a task and just trusted to do that task without supervision or check-in or whatever it is. So I think for me, it's more been about looking at the individual team members and looking at what they respond to best and then just trying to deliver on that. And and it can be different for every person, but it's it's really just, yeah, just trying to figure out what kind of, what motivates them, what engages them. And it is different for different people. So I think that's probably the main point really is, is that when you're leading a team is to just sort of accept that the same thing is not going to work for every team member. So, you know, just try and individualize, I guess, those sort of connection points and relationships and ultimately find the way to bring out the best in uh, each individual. Yeah. Individualism is key. Treat people like people and understand that each person has got different motivations and desires and needs. That's, that's huge. A lot of our audience is in corporate America. People are in various points of leadership, whether they've got authority, whether they're leading by example, what tips or advice would you have for leaders and employees that, that you use with your adventure racing teams that you think can be parlayed into other environments? We're not all running through the woods, you know, in unspeakable conditions, but the corporate jungle can be pretty challenging to kind of navigate too. So what, what would you say are uh, good bits of insight? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if it's that different. I mean, in the sense that what works, at, you know, literally out running through the jungle into everyday life, I think you know, most of the key things will transfer across pretty easily or, or quite smoothly in my experience. But I think probably the key things I'd say come down to very basic values. And those key ones, I think, for me would be respect and trust. And as a leader, it's always been important for me to earn the respect of the people that I'm leading and not just accept that that's going to be a given because the position I'm in or whatever it is. So I think if people agree that earning respect is a good thing and being respected by the people that you're leading, then the next question is, well, how do you earn that respect? And for me, that has been by setting an example and modeling what I want the team to be. And that will naturally earn respect because, you know, essentially the team members will sort of see, well, he's doing what he's asking us to do. So that seems pretty fair. And then another key thing is the trust, is earning people's trust. And one of the easiest ways I've found for people to earn people's trust for the team members that I'm leading or the team I'm leading is to sort of delegate and empower things to them so that they understand that I believe in their ability and trust them to be able to do the job. And that kind of feeds back to earning that respect as well. So I think a lot of it comes down to the leader is accepting that people may do something differently to what you had in mind, mm -hmm. but it's probably going to be fine the way they do it. And the thing I've learned over the years is that what's actually most important for me when I delegate out roles and tasks and jobs is not that the person does it to the same level or to the, the same way I would do it, but what's most important is, is that they, they do it with their best effort and intentions. 
And 99% of the time, that will be absolutely fine if they do that. But it's really important for me that it's more effort-focused than, I guess, outcome-focused. Because if they're trying their best, then I can't ask for any more than that. And if you just keep going with that, their best mm -hmm. effort will actually improve over time as well. So at this beginning, it may not be quite what you had in mind, but it's okay. But if you just keep trusting those people and respecting them and empowering them to do that, and as long as they keep doing their best, the bar will rise. And that's essentially what we've done in our adventure racing team that I think has been one of the reasons why we are very successful. Speaking of success, I would be remiss if I didn't really kind of share the big news that your team, sponsored by Avaya, won big at the 2022 Adventure Racing World Championship in the town of Tobati. So congratulations. That's an amazing accomplishment to you and the team who reclaimed the title that you guys last won on uh, Reunion Island back in 2018. Can you share some of the challenges and the competition that you faced during the race? And how did you lead the team to victory? Thank you. Yeah, we did have a great uh, experience over there in, in Paraguay and a great race. Well, great outcome as well. I guess the challenges, they came in a multiple number of forms, really. Like the beginning, I would say that with COVID uh, in New Zealand, we've been essentially locked down here in terms of international travel for basically three years. The New Zealand borders mm -hmm. were closed. So what that meant for us was that we couldn't travel to the World Championships in 2021, which was last year. So obviously with COVID, there was a couple of world champs that didn't happen just because of global disruption. Sure. But then we missed one of the world champs, which uh, meant that nearly all of the top teams in the world were getting international race experience that we were missing out on. So that was one thing that was a little bit of a challenge to overcome. Another one was that the world champs for us being in September means that we have to train through a New Zealand winter. So it's really difficult to, to train when it's cold and wet and the days are short. And mm -hmm. also with COVID around, three of our teammates, including myself, all had COVID during winter. So it's quite challenging to keep positive and focused when you're training through that period, when you know that uh, most of your competition is up in summer in the Northern Hemisphere. And they've got big, long, beautiful days and lots of races on and they're staying healthy because they're able to be outside. So there's those things that are, I think are quite significant. And then the other big challenge for us leading into the world champs was is that one of our core teammates actually had an injury less than two weeks before the race. So we had to bring in a substitution. So we were really lucky that we were managed to find another woman in New Zealand racer called Simone Meyer. And she literally just jumped into the team about 10 days before the race. So yeah, we had all these wow. challenges leading into the race which kind of meant that we turned up you know, just feeling a bit on the back foot. And mm -hmm. you know, so that, that's one thing, I guess, that we sort of have to overcome. The races themselves are hugely challenging, just physically and mentally, just getting through the tasks ahead. So, so to turn up and just kind of feel a little bit, oh, not to sort of have that, I guess, real confidence behind us is, is sort of one thing that we had to deal with. And then within the race, we had a couple of things that came up that sort of made things probably more challenging than they needed to be, you know, a couple of curveballs. So lots of problems and obstacles to, uh, to get through. Yeah. So you mentioned the substitute that you had to bring in right before the race. 
When you think about assembling a team and building a successful team, how do you go about assembling your team? What are some of the things you consider during that process? I guess in event racing, the first thing that you need when assembling the team is you need to make sure that first thing is, is that the person has the skills and the capability to do the job. So, mm-hmm. you know, the first thing is you, if you can't do those things, then you're not going to be a, a valuable contributor to this. So you're telling me I'm cut. <laughs> just for now. But uh, don't give up just yet. <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> there's always a chance. Yeah, that's right. So that's the first thing really is making sure that the person just has the basic or the core skills and ability to get through. But then once you've essentially arranged a group or arranged some options, then what we're looking for is not necessarily the person who is the fastest and the strongest, but the person who will fit the best into the team culture. And that really comes down to sort of personality and values and I think actually people's sort of beliefs and perceptions want to get a team together that is very like-minded and can all agree on kind of the shared vision or the goals and be committed to essentially what is the the team culture, what we think is special about that team. So over the years, we have had to make changes and find replacements and things. And those are the key things that we're looking for is, is not who is the fastest and strongest person to fill this gap. It is who is a fit and strong person who will fit our team culture the best. Yeah. Simon Sinek actually talks about this a bit in one of his TED Talks that the U.S. Navy SEALs talk about how they grade each team member on an axis of performance versus trust. And I think you could swap trust with culture, you know, with what you're describing. And they would rather have somebody who's farther down but farther right you know, because they fit the culture better, even if they're not necessarily the top performer. And it, it's fascinating to hear how that can kind of be applied in like an adventure racing team and a special warfare group or in pretty much any environment. You already talked a little bit about the grueling training and some of the disadvantages that you have from a geography perspective, because to your point, you're training in your winter, shorter days, shorter nights, while your competitors are training in longer days and nicer weather. You must do some level of team building exercises to kind of build that fabric of culture. What are some of your favorites that you've done over the years? We do. To be honest, we don't do them as much as we used to because now we've raced together for so long that we... The team's built. (laughs) The team's built, exactly. But I think looking back, I'll probably almost go as far as say that doing an adventure race with a group of people is quite possibly the ultimate team building experience as well. <laughs> so, so if you think of this team having done fair enough years and years of racing, it's those are in themselves pretty amazing things, but probably a little bit more of a just you know, general comment on that is I generally find that in life, you good friendships are either a result of, you know, longevity. So people that you've just known for a long time, whether they be school friends or family or colleagues, and you've seen these people for a long part of your life and you've become friends and and that's great. The other way that you can become friends is, or have that experience, is through sharing very, very intense experiences. So I used to work at Outward Bound School as an outdoor educator. 
And that was a good example because that was essentially a 21 day outdoor program, but extremely intense. And strangers would come together and be pitted against a 21 day challenge. And they, some of those people become friends for life just after that 21 days. And I think event racing is quite similar as well, is that people can go to a foreign country in an event racing team. They'll be on the road for a couple of weeks because obviously there's a travel either side of the race and the race can take up to 10 days. So those very intense experiences where people are living together intensely, seeing each other at their absolute best, absolute worst, stripping down all the layers so that you see the raw person underneath and then all those things can come out, the trust and respect and valuing each other and helping each other out. So yeah, I guess my point is to answer your original question is what is the sort of ultimate team building thing? For me, it is usually striving to have those quite intense experiences. And that's what we used to do for our team building is we would actually just get together and we would go and do an adventure. Uh, it would be challenging, it would push us, it would give us lots of time to sort of talk to each other and learn about each other. and it wouldn't necessarily take a lot of time, but you would finish those, essentially those adventures or those mini expeditions and feel super connected to these people and, and understand who these people actually are. That's awesome. So, you know, you mentioned going out and challenging yourself and challenging the team. For your career, you've demonstrated incredible proficiency across different sports segments. How do you prepare or how do you approach preparing yourself to take on such a wide variety of challenges? Yeah, that's correct, Stephen. So in adventure racing, the rule really is that any mode of transport that's human powered can be included in an adventure race. So it normally means running and trekking or hiking, mountain biking, and then water water disciplines. So whitewater rafting, ocean kayaking, canoeing on lakes. There can be glacier travel, there can be inline skating. Pretty much if you imagine any outdoor sport that doesn't include fuel and a motor can be involved in adventure racing. So over my career, you know, myself and my teammates, we've had to become proficient at lots and lots of different sports. And that's one of the things that's really exciting and motivating about being involved in adventure racing is you're constantly on that journey of improvement because you'll enter a race and they'll say, oh, this race has got, I mean, inline skating is a great example. I, I never had inline skated until one time I went to a race that had inline skating in it. So we have to be able to learn that really quick, but not just learn so we try to avoid hurting ourselves. We actually have to get quite good. Sure. Um, so, sure. so yeah, so that I've really enjoyed the, the challenge of learning those new skills. And I think the reason why I've enjoyed it is because you literally are on that journey of self-improvement. You can actually see yourself getting better at something. And I think for most people, they find that hugely motivating when you learn something, and especially at the beginning, because your learning curve is so steep that, you know, you can start from nowhere and then not long after, you're like, I can actually do this. And then, yeah, obviously getting really good at something takes a bit more time. But yeah, over the years, we just had to make that time really to learn all these different sports that we may need to do in races. And, and I think for the people that are really interested in event racing, that is one of the appeals of the sport is, is that there are so many disciplines and so many different things you can do. So you're not only learning a new sport, what you're often doing as well is connecting with other communities. So you start to sort of meet people and learn from different people that you wouldn't have normally probably contacted with if, if you weren't sort of forced into that situation to go and 
go learn this new thing. That sounds like a superpower to basically say, well, there's going to be inline skating. I've got to learn how to inline skate. And to your point, it's not weekend warrior level inline skating. I got to be an elite athlete in this talent set. But that also introduces, there's a certain level of challenge and risk. And I'm sure you've got to do a certain level of risk management and you don't want to push yourself too far. And when you've taken people out on outdoor adventures, you don't want them to push themselves too far. What's the importance about being realistic of your own abilities and, but while at the same time challenging yourself? Because to your point, that learning curve is so steep in the beginning. A lot of times that can be daunting. Or I look at it and say, well, you know, no pain, no gain, as the old saying says. So where do you find that balance? And what are some of the tips that you kind of drive to people when they're trying to kind of be you, you know, and say, all right, I'm going to learn how to inline skate? Yeah, I think an analogy I quite like to use, and I've used this a lot when I was working in outdoor education, was to sort of just go into a bit of a fantasy world and think of yourself as a dragon slayer. And if you're a young dragon slayer, at some point you need to discover what size dragon that you can actually slay. And if you sort of think of challenges of being sort of, you know, little dragons, medium-sized dragons, or huge dragons, most people probably wouldn't go and take on the biggest, nastiest, 10-headed dragon. You know, they're going to start with a small one. And if they can manage that, then they go, okay, well, now I can go to a bigger one, and then I can go to a bigger one. And what I generally find is, is that if people start too small, then they kind of go, well, that was actually quite easy. It was enjoyable, but I didn't really feel that rewarded or that fulfilled because, you know, I'm actually better than that. So next sure. time our village is involved in defending ourselves from killer dragons, I'm going to take on a bigger size dragon. And then mm-hmm. I just think from people just continually, I guess, just stretching that that bubble or, or just, just going to that next level is how you do that. And then sooner or later, if that progression is sensible, then, you know, you will find over time and there will come a point in time when, without even probably even realizing it, that, you know, the next time the village is under attack, you know, you're going after the biggest, ugliest dragon because you know now that I can challenge this one. And so it's, I think it's really important to know that in most cases, it's probably better to start off small, but know that each time just kind of step it up. And if you put that into a challenge of sort of outdoors or sports or whatever it might be, you know, if people just want to be you know, more active in the outdoors, is just start yeah. off with some small, small things. And if they feel too easy, that's okay. You just know that next time I go, I'm going to extend myself a bit more. And occasionally you might extend yourself a bit too much. But then in reflection, you go, oh, actually, that I probably bit off a little bit more than I can chew there. So next time I'm just going to back it off a wee bit. And But I think the important thing is, is that people really strive to sort of push that boundary. Because mm-hmm. I think if you get that right, that is where, where you feel challenged. And then so when you achieve that task or whatever it may be, then you actually feel a genuine reward. And I think it's quite important to have that because if you're just doing a whole lot of easy things, if people are honest with themselves, they'll be like, well, I achieved that, but it was actually pretty easy. Or I was, it was quite comfortable. So I, I do think it's important, um, you know, in some of the things you do in life that you you really do take on dragon that you're not quite sure <laughs> if, if, uh, mm-hmm. if you can do it. Sounds, yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense. 
Something else that I want to speak with you about that I know you're really passionate about is the Favive Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about the incredible work that the Foundation's Fund has accomplished and what it's like for you carrying on your parents' legacy who started the Foundation back in 96? Yeah, so the Foundation is essentially aimed at helping Pacifica youth in the top of the South Island, which is the region that I live in. So my father is from Samoa, from the Pacific Islands, and he came to New Zealand in the 70s to sort of make a life. And well, I guess one of the things, it's probably quite common in lots of parts of the world, but with either indigenous people or people coming from those smaller nations, is, is that quite often those communities are either disadvantaged communities or don't have equal opportunities to achieve. So in New Zealand, it's quite common. I think it's fair to say that the Pacifica people are generally very working class or lower working class. And in terms of sort of essentially, I guess, wealth distribution, they're down the lower end. So what that means for a lot of the young people, the young Pacifica people, is they just don't have the same opportunities as other some of the other young people in the community because their families just don't have those resources. And as you can imagine, that talent is not kind of distributed just to the wealthy and things. So what sort of happens in New Zealand is there's these extremely talented young people across the spectrum that are incredibly talented, but just sometimes don't get the opportunities to really develop those talents just simply because their family doesn't have the resources or the awareness. So what my parents decided or saw was is that through some, by setting up this foundation, that they could help those disadvantaged Pacifica youth, really just focusing on, on the community that we connect with the most. And that is largely through education and outdoor education. So that's what the foundation is basically set up for, is to help those young people who do often come from disadvantaged homes to be able to have an opportunity to really use their talents and develop their talents and to, to go out and to the world and do amazing things. That's outstanding. That really is impressive. You know, Nathan, I just want to thank you again for joining the show. I found the conversation just fascinating and uh, I couldn't even fathom doing what you do. <laughs> I can barely run my three miles, never mind the kind of adventure racing you guys are pulling off. So just, I'm in awe. Thank you for joining us. Great. Thanks, Steve. It's been good to chat. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to give us a rating and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your host, Steve Forkham, and this has been The Experience, where we share insights into the future of customer and employee experiences.